A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us in the section we're reading. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. Think of us as your drunk weekly book club. Guess what I did this week, Crossland? You took notes. I know what you did well, this okay, week. Well, okay, I did take notes, but more importantly, I fucking finished a book. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, that's also a big deal. <laughs> both, <laughs> both of those things are big. I mean, yeah, it feels good. And I fucking hate you for leaving me here in this place of not continuing to read the story uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> we gotta we got at least a week of uh recording the wrap episodes and other things like that a couple weeks well we a couple weeks yeah because we're spacing up trying to catch up the recordings to us um as they get published so yeah i mean but it's, also you're gonna be here and we're not gonna record a regular episode while you're here I think we're going to try to record a short story episode while you're actually physically next to me. And I have a plan to make you play Galaga with me in between like chunks of the book. Um, so it'll it'll <laughs> go interestingly. We'll uh, we'll see. We'll see how it all fares in the yeah, end. We'll see how um, that goes. But yes. Yeah, we for you, we're going to hit a small pause in the on the whole story while other people catch up with us. So yeah. it'll uh, it'll be I don't want to. <laughs> yeah i just yeah. you've infected me yes that's I excellent hate you for it with with my reading spoiler, i love my you literature for it but spoiler. i hate it for hate you for it yeah so with, no, with that note we're yeah, gonna be talking about we're gonna be talking about and discussing the end of the book so from chapter 39 proctor's bounty to the end of our first book in the red rising series so before we do that let's uh talk about what we're drinking what are you having I've got a nice ginger gin and tonic. So I didn't have any fresh ginger to garnish with, but um, just uh, tonic, lime, juice, gin, obviously. Mm -hmm. Roku gin, I think. It's a Japanese gin. And then it's this uh, ginger liqueur. Not the same one that I used before when I talked to you about this drink, but it's like Clement de Germain, something like that. I don't remember. It's got mm -hmm. a funky bottle and it's got ginger. It's a nice, very subtle ginger liqueur, but and then garnished with a uh, lime wheel. And uh, to follow that up, I've got a one of my old time favorites that I haven't had in a while, and that is a red IPA called Fixed Gear from Lakefront Brewery out of mm. Milwaukee, mm. Wisconsin. So one Fixed. kind of a throwback favorite. I I used to drink this all the time. Um, I love this beer. Somewhere between an amber and an IPA, and by IPA I mean like classic West Coast bitter, forward, less juicy more resiny kind of piney IPA mm -hmm. but with the real like heavy multi backbone, like the, uh, like the original furious that you and I like used to furious. bond over. Yeah. Yep. Ah, the days of the surly furious. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, <laughs> I love fixed gear. I haven't had it in a while. That definitely is me pining for one. Yeah. You're um, going to be here in a week. We can, we can get you some. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, I am having what I'm calling. I actually, I'm not going to claim to have invented this. I'm sure someone in some bar somewhere has done this, but I'm dubbing it the low red because I didn't find anything online. <laughs> so for our first themed cocktail for a book, I decided uh, I've got what it what amounts to a vodka Red Bull with cherry concentrate in it. 
and it is shockingly good. It actually doubles down on the like cherry flavor that I kind of think sits in Red Bull. Yeah, uh, Red Bull is definitely cherry flavored. Yeah, it's it's, it's like a cherry, cherry flavored, medicine but it, flavored. But the cherry concentrate actually makes it a lot more acidic and kind of okay. gives it like a, a a lot more of like a cherry punch. Okay. And so it actually tastes way I better. I feel like I that would actually I don't like fix vodka it. Red Bulls. Yeah, that would it, fix it, Red Bull. Exactly. So it's it's really good, actually. I'm, okay. I'm pretty what, what sort of um, uh, What sort of ratios did you do for that guy? I know it. So, it was, so the recipe itself, as Cross wrote it and a picture of it, will be on the on our website, wordsandwhiskey.show. Run through it. What's up? Yeah, so two ounces of vodka, uh, full small can of Red Bull, like the, the standard size. And then... Eight ounce, I think. Yep. And then a half a shot of this cherry concentrate. Um, okay. Of which I'll figure out whatever the brand is and so in the instructions. You, and then ice <laughs> Icy boys. You slid it by and made it a cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> by the slimmest yeah, of margins. But the concentrate is so potent. I like you. No, you I bring don't. it to know, your mouth know, and you try it. And it's like, I it's know. terrible. But yes, I did. I did <laughs> slim it by. I could I could have thrown in like a lime or something, but I felt like that would have diluted it the wrong way. So. Oh, I do love the combo of cherry and lime, though. It generally goes together, but it just tasted so good and so pungent as is. I was like, mm, I don't, don't want to do that. Totally fair. So. And then uh, what you got following that? Following that up with a victory sour monkey sour triple. So okay. it's a nice, nice. sour triple bel- Belgian. It's- yeah, I've uh, I've had their I've had the victory golden monkey. Their their standard triple. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever had the sour rendition of it. Yeah, it's it's a spin on that. Um, yep. Which yeah, I've also got a golden monkey in the fridge, but I settled on the sour monkey. Fair enough. Yeah. So with that, let's uh, let's get into the book. And there is a lot that happens this week, and I just want to I just want to set this out for kind of like future expectations to some degree. This it's a very interesting story, but in book four, you know, my sister got married in January of this year before the pandemic happened, and my dad had forty pages left in book four. And he decided that he was going to skip it and just start book five. And he immediately when he started book five, he like he went, what the fuck happened at the end of book four? Why? That seems like such a that doesn't seem like a decision your dad would typically make. Typically, no, but I don't think he wanted to lug both of the books to Mexico was kind of the thing. They're both like one's a one's a 500 page giant. The other one's like 650 or something like that. So they get big. But he was like, I don't want to take it. I'm just going to skip like the last 30 or 40 pages or something like that. And he's like, what the fuck happened um, when he started the next book? And uh, that is a common theme <laughs> throughout. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we get to cover the basically like the last 40 ish pages here. I, I've got a question on that. Do you yeah. think that is his writing style or do you think that's a an artifact of the editing process? Well, I think that's his writing style. Okay. Accelerate. I I think it's it is most similar to a tool that would be used by people who write serialized fiction. You know, someone who's going to publish like a third of a novel at a time once every week or so. Okay. It's it's a very kind of that thing um, brought into this medium to some degree. I'm not saying that that cheapens it or does anything to it. I just feel like it it, it kind of has that serialized flavor that science fiction used to have. That it was very it was a very common trope that runs through old science fiction because so much of it was written that way gotcha you were either a short story where it was just a self-contained short story or it was like a five-part serialized you know 40 pages at a time because they could only publish so much in in the pages that's actually how side tangent that's how the gunslinger by stephen king was originally published which is the first book in the dark tower series it was a five-part serialized set of short stories that entangled this character 
only later was it ever cut together as a book. Anyway, that's that's kind of how I think that like the ending of these novels are they're kind of like an homage in that style. Um, but we'll we'll get there. And something that I also want to clarify in the front end of this episode, this is not going to be our last episode on the Red Rising series as a whole. We're just really going to be focused on talking about setups and payoffs and like the content of these last 40 pages. We'll be reviewing and talking about and discussing the whole book in a separate episode to come out the week following yes. this one, just yep. so you know. We will so be. don't expect this to be a full breakdown of everything. This is just going to be what happens in these pages. I did a quick Google search, by the way, uh, and I'd like to make an amendment to my drink recipe. Domain Decanton is the name. <laughs> got it. Got it. Got it. Didn't get anywhere close to it. No, nope, uh, when I not said at it. all. Can't even remember what I said before, but... Domaine de Canton ginger liqueur is what went into it. As as previously mentioned, we have a ton to cover. So yes, let's jump in. Yep, yep. We've uh, we've got a lot here. Right off the bat, we we get we we get kind of like the payoff of taking over House Apollo, right? Mm-hmm. Which it's it's wonderful. The Proctors immediately show up, and right off the bat, we're with Fitchner again inside of a jam field to kind of discuss things in a silent manner. Yes. And Darrow very quickly guesses that Fitchner is there to tell him that Apollo hasn't left Olympus, which I think it was a little naive to think that that would be the way to get rid of him. Like that, that was clearly he was going to stay. I, I felt yeah. like that from the beginning. Like there's no real chance that Apollo was going to leave. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I think that there are components where Apollo is stubborn enough to believe that he wasn't going to have to leave as though he had made a deal earlier, perhaps to ensure that his house would survive to a certain point so as to like curry him favor. And then Darrow obviously totally fucked that up with his independent house at this point. So yeah, I I definitely agree with you. Um, Thinking that Apollo was going to leave was a little bit foolish, but I also don't think it was strictly wrong because obviously like there are golds that cheat, but there are also golds that follow the rules of society. So it's kind of interesting just to see. He's already established that Apollo is one of the golds that cheats. Yes, yes. And some of the other golds that cheated have left as well. So like there's there's kind of like a there's there's a duality there where Apollo makes a nice good short term, like not short term, but makes a nice villain. And so I think Mm -hmm. that it makes sense for him to remain. And I think it tracks with his character, too. Oh, it does. I just think that I don't think it's foolish of Darrow necessarily to think that he would stay. Not foolish, but naive yes yeah naive yeah. for sure naive for sure or maybe he didn't really expect it maybe just needed him to explicitly show that he's breaking the rules mm-hmm. in a way that everyone can see yeah which is and possible it, but he doesn't really call to that much no no not until the very end is any of kind of that talked about in any degree and we will definitely get there but i think it's important to clarify on the front end that apollo very much is on nero's side trying to curry favor with house augustus but the danger there is that if any of the actual i think they're called drafters like the people who are going to take these people and move them into jobs and careers yeah uh, the drafters the ones that have access to the the ring cams or whatever Yep. Yep. They're the ones who are really going to you know, be left out of the details, so to speak. And they're the ones who are going to be pissed off. Mm-hmm. They don't know what happened. So that sets up and pays off later very, very well um, and is also mentioned throughout, which I think he geniusly sprinkles in very little, but also puts it there so that if you're paying attention, you know how that'll how that's going to come to terms or fruition. Right. So we, we know that he's stayed. We can assume that some others may have stayed as well as their houses have dwindled or been eliminated. We also find out in that conversation that 
Fitchner is Severo's father. Were you surprised? Um, <laughs> I was really surprised. But thinking about it, it does make sense. Um, there's some little, not clues, but um, things that in retrospect make a lot more sense. Like um, he's the one that coined the nickname Goblin for Severo, right? Yep. Yep. Called him a little goblin. Which is not something he did for any of the other kids. And I initially thought it was kind of him singling out the weakest or the smallest or the, like the the kid to be picked on. Um, but I think it was kind of a way to push him a little bit, push Severo, mm-hmm. knowing that he was probably there as fodder. Like he, he's not a dumb guy. He knows that his son was chosen in the bottom half and therefore was probably chosen as no less by a sacrifice. Though. Like that's the interesting part of this, right? Severo. Yeah was chosen in the bottom half oh that's an interesting right it it does it does raise an interesting question because they're ultimately the ones that pick for the houses but would it be favoritism to choose your own kid early i think so and so drafting him so late is interesting um also he killed priam right so that's kind of part of the reason they also get some moniker goblin because he really wasn't supposed to but let me get into that later. But right after this, right after this. But I think the fact that he's kind of pushing him a little bit, mm-hmm. but also pushing him more than any of the other kids shows like a sense of trying to motivate Goblin, Severo, and uh, also maybe trying to hide the fact that he's his father and trying not to play favorites, which is the ultimate irony of this, because yeah. this is all based on favoritism. But- right, right. He's He's not favoriting his kid at all. As a goal, like you get a direct comparison there between Jackal and another member that we'll talk about of that family in a second, um, as well as Severo and Fitchner. Like you get a direct comparison between Nero and Fitchner. Right. And the way that power corrupts in those ways versus the like meritocracy that Fitchner is clearly a part of. But hear me out. You just like turned me on to an idea. Fitchner chooses Severo as a low draft to be mur- fucking murdered. But he's also got a lot of pull in the house itself. Does he seed Severo with some sort of unfair advantage during the call or during the uh what's the name of it? Not the calling, the, the passage. Uh, the passage. Yeah. It was it was also called the calling by uh um by Fitchner. Fitchner right. called yeah, it yeah, the calling yeah. at one point. But yeah. So like that's that's possible and in this in this passage that we're reading right now, he clearly is fairly passionate passionate about how far his son can go in this world and how it's unfair that he can't go farther so if he holds the values that it's unfair he he has the power to do something about it and it's not unreasonable that he could have done something to uh give mm-hmm. him a little bit a little bit of an edge but also maybe he didn't need that much of an edge he's a scrappy mm-hmm. kid no right he's he's also proven himself to not only be worthy of the moniker you know goblin but also he is an incredibly scrappy kid. I think at one point you had pinned him for one of the potential reds when I we were did. going over the potential red section. And uh, this isn't the, that, that far off. No, right, right. In the grand scheme of things, it's very far off. But in in sort of the sense of scale that we're talking about here, he's mm-hmm. kind of also one of the lowest. He's a similar outcast to yeah. to darrow not identical yeah totally which i mean they had that conversation earlier several mm-hmm. talks to him about like not being not having the same privileges growing up and wanting to rise as much as he could and knowing that he probably can't get as far as somebody with the pedigree that darrow has 
hypothetically, Mm -hmm. allegedly. And that also kind of speaks to the idea that maybe Fitchner and Severo have talked about this and hold Mm -hmm. similar philosophies about what it means to be a gold. And we'll get into more later because there's a lot more that Severo does. Yeah, there's there's a lot that, that Severo, there's a lot in this section. Like 40 pages packs so much of a punch. Um, it really does. Bit. But yeah, so at the very end of this section, before we move into the next one, we get Darrow punching out Fitchner. I particularly like the line, but take care of Severo. The little shit will follow you anywhere, no matter what I say. And then he knocks him out, breaks his nose. With a slam of his elbow till he yeah. no longer moves. Oh, oops. <laughs> and then looking at 337, I kind of like the metaphor of mud, right? I'm trying to remember. You have my trust of- because we saw, or because when you saw me hiding in the mud after taking my castle, you let me escape, she explains thoughtfully. I have your trust because I pulled you from the mud when Cassius left you for dead. Yeah, right. And I, I love kind of the the other component of this, too. And so what I was trying to talk to you, thanks for pulling up the quote, um, is that not only is there that dichotomy between the two of them of rescuing each other from the mud and the trust that that builds, but also in a way Mustang going back for Darrow also signifies like her kind of reaching like I think it speaks to how gold has the ability to reach down to red and lift them up but they choose not to more often than not whereas mm. Mustang in this situation doesn't know what she's doing but it ultimately is that sort of move in the background you know to us it's it's interesting to or for us it's kind of dramatic irony in the in the fact that we know that he's red and a gold is saving a red. So I had had a couple thoughts on that. One is sort of the idea of being in the mud. And Darrow finds himself there often, not only literally, but figuratively as well. And I think he kind of does it on purpose because he knows those are sort of tactics there's that so exist much cherry and are effective. The of this. Oh, there's a lot of cherry. <laughs> yep, right in the bottom. Oh, no. <laughs> it just kicked me in the throat. You're good. Uh, <laughs> the tactics. Like yeah, you're they, saying. Um, there are some sort of very effective tactics that he implements throughout his entire time at the Institute that nobody else really considers or even like puts a second thought to, such <laughs> as the howlers being sewn into the bellies of the of the dead horses uh even mustang she she makes the connection that there's a trap but never considers the idea that they're hidden in horse carcasses there's also i was proud of this sort of thought i i I actually wrote this note down he's playing dirty because they're playing dirty two different sort of meanings of the word dirty there but he's he's getting kind of in the shit of it because they're cheating Mm mm-hmm Totally. And, but he he doesn't seem to really be cheating at any point. He, he's working with what he's got. He's not breaking any rules because if, it was, if he were to break rules, he'd be eliminated, I would assume. Mm-hmm. And also he doesn't have the like capabilities of breaking rules. To but your ex- Oh, no, I was going to say is to your exact point. It's it's not like that. They go low. We go high. It's they go low and we go nasty. But within the rules. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We go no, where no gold has gone before. Because mm-hmm. he's not a gold. He's not a gold. Guys, I have a secret about Darrow. He's not actually a, a red. Weird. Isn't that strange? Don't tell anyone. So right after that, they very easily take the castle and we're introduced to Lucian by way of the Siege of Jupiter's house. Um, what do you think of, of dear oh, Lucian? He... Before, before he becomes the jackal, what do you think of Lucian? I didn't trust him at all. 
Did you think that he was the jackal, though? I had a feeling he was. Okay, okay. So, um, simply because anyone that would come out and surrender like that, I feel like wouldn't have lasted this long in the game. So it really kind of made me, made my spider sense tick. It threw flags. Sure. I didn't know if he was the jackal or somebody working with the jackal. I had some suspicions and those were confirmed later, but yeah, I didn't think he was actually named Lucius, Lucius, Lucian, Lucian. Lucian. It's, it's nuts. So the, the part of this that I also really, really, really like is sort of Darrow's intuition that something's wrong in the same way that your intuition was, right? So he he convinces his primary lieutenants who kind of know what's going on to go away. The rest of his troops go along with his act and ploy of acting drunk, even though earlier in the previous section, we knew that the grapes that were grabbed from Bacchus's castle weren't wine. And they, they all like act along with him as he kind of instructs. And all of the lieutenants kind of come in and Doesn't out. Doesn't even and instruct, like, just leads, which was well, interesting. And yeah, really true. Like kind of a testament to how well he's trained this army and how much they trust him. Yeah. Also, this chapter does a great job of building up Pax. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, I fell in love with Pax here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's so unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, Pax. Um, get there. We'll get there in a second. I think Mustang's reaction to Lucian is also pretty telling. It's right there on the surface. She's very clearly like shocked and also unwilling to give up the knowledge of anything to Darrow, right? Like she doesn't want to overplay Darrow's hand on her own. Like she's, she's smart enough to know and understand that it's yeah. the Jackal, but also like if Darrow's planning something or playing at something, then let him play at it because maybe he's got a strategic upper hand that she's unaware of. Um, I don't know what it was, but something there were, there are a few things in this, in this chapter and they happen to be things that you highlighted that I like called as I was reading it. And I actually like thought about this while I was reading this, ch- like this chunk as like Mustang leaves and has some, like, I can't even remember what she said or like her description, like how she looked or whatever it was, but I'm like, Oh, I wonder if she's got to be that guy's brother or something. Or that, that guy's sister or something. Like, I don't know what it was, but like, I fucking called it. Right yeah, away. I mean, the the like paragraph that kind of gets as close as possible is getting shit faced seems to be a prime idea at a time like this. She says, strangely, she looks back to Lucian, then to me. She doesn't like something. I introduced her to Lucian. She he mumbles how nice it is to meet her. She snorts a laugh. And it's yeah. it's like so opaque. Yeah. that Darrow's out on the game. It also sets off, it, it sets up the payoff <laughs> later, <laughs> Christ, um, <laughs> for for the sibling thing, right? And Darrow being so paranoid about it right there, right then, because mm-hmm. they knew each other in that moment. I think the snort was probably. He also says, uh, Lucian says, the jackal says on the next page, the pretty one, Mustang, she hardly seems simple. And like, there's enough illusion there to yeah. really like lead you down that path that mm-hmm. just gets confirmed, you know? A couple of pages away, but it's just so much happened so quickly. So chapter for, chapter 41, we know he's the jackal and Darrow fucking stabs a knife into his hand through the table four inches deep. He can't move it after, you know, pulling out the bag for, full of rings and confirming that it's him revealing that the it, ring from Pluto is missing. Well, n- not revealing. I well, guess kind of. of. I can't he's find like, Pluto. Oh, I'm missing one from Pluto. There's one like, oh, I'm taking yours. But also his sort of reveal that like, no, you like your ring didn't fit you. Clearly, this isn't yours. You're trying to be something you're not. God, that monologue was straight out of 
super villain handbook. What's so great to me about the Jackal inside of these chapters is he's really only got two chapters in total in the entire book. And he's been painted as the villain. He's got a very like Darth Vader. Vader. I'm talking Darrow's monologue. Oh, Darrow's monologue is excellent. I definitely and agree with like, you. I, I think read fairly like sinister. And if you were, if you were on the receiving end of it, would feel like a supervillain talking to you. You're so right. That's actually a really good read on that. Um, it totally reads like a like a Bond villain being read their rights from the opposite perspective. Bond villain, you know, revealing their plan. You know what I mean? Oh, that's that's uh, really good. I point to myself, Jackal. I am the Reaper. You've the better name. How long have you known? And I, I just I love I love this entire interaction. This chapter is the best or not the best, but it's one of my favorites. And I like, as I had mentioned before, the fact that the Jackal only has like two or three chapters and is basically painted as this dark figure in the background, very similar to the way that Darth Vader is only in like 14 minutes of the first movie of Star Wars. And yet as the main antagonist we're presented with is fascinating in the same kind of way. Right. Yeah, it's just it's so good. It really is. We'll 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 get into it more. Um, it, this all like the hard part about like going chronologically mm-hmm. with this section is that it's so short and so dense and so much of it like refers to refers back to things that happened in earlier parts of this section. So like all I want to do is like word vomit about like the implications of everything that's happening later on, but we're trying to kind of go in order of right. Of right, right. Get, get, get through the chapter itself and then kind of go through all of the components that contribute to this. Totally. Uh, okay. So the, like, you, like you'd mentioned, the monologue is incredible. And then we kind of get like this reveal over those sentences in response to Darrow's monologue of this sort of like fucking cold, languid character that he is right he just he takes his time his his tongue is tipped with poison as he walks through these sentences and kind of walks you off the plank with them and he really kind of switches i think i wrote this a little bit later actually i think this is a final question that i wrote but he kind of becomes like schizophrenic between the different personalities as you like walk him along these lines he he jumps between them you know lucian is lucian's kind of like a He's a positive guy. He's an outlook. He's like a he's a, a classic gold as we've been trained to think of them. And then we switch to the jackal and the jackal has these underpinnings of supervillain Machiavellian politico. Um, and I, I really feel like that's kind of the perspective is that the 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 people who play politics in this society are the worst. They're the most evil because yeah. they, they'll say anything to do whatever. They'll be spineless because mm-hmm. it gets them farther. Ugh, so um, good. So good. So the the quid pro quo statement, like, you know, like just it just like hits different right now. Right. Like, I don't know. I I just when I read that, I was like, this was written in 2014. Right. Like it wasn't written in response. Okay, All right. Just checking on the whole like Ukraine quid pro quo thing. Anyway, uh, keeping politics out of this. It's just like, what did you think of the jackal as a whole, though? Like, like I said, I feel like I get the Politico vibe. I get some of those things. He seemed really, really intelligent, but that kind of seemed to be all that was really going for him. If that makes sense. It, It seemed clear that he had help. Because knowing, fr- like, from the perspective of House Mars, the ones that had intelligence 
and bronze, bronze and brains, are the ones that rose to power. The mm-hmm. ones with straight intelligence made a nice little space for themselves towards the top. Like Roke. Antonia. Antonia, yeah. But they weren't the ruthless leader that mm-hmm. the jackals kind of set out to be. So it was kind of clear to me that somebody of this disposition in this situation kind of had to have external help in order I, to gain a following. See, so I, I think he gained his following without question. I think within the house he was going, he was set out to like be primus or was probably set up to be primus to some degree. Sure. Um, but I think in almost any situation he would have done well. However, I think he was obviously amplified to do way better the, the reason that I say that he did well is specifically because he was unable to kind of get help within the caves when he was underneath all the rock and had to eat kids. Right. We get that. He just seemed in a second truly disturbed by it. No, oh, no, I felt like I felt like he didn't seem like he I'd do it. I'd fucking do it again. Like I did what I had to. It seemed more like we were desperate. It was the only option and we had to do that. That's not ruthlessness that's that's strict eat or be eaten i um, i think it's also i think it's also ruthlessness though to a certain where's degree. that quote because after months of darkness you eat whatever your mouth finds even if it's still moving it isn't very impressive really less human that i would have liked very much like animals and anyone would have done it but dredging up my foul memories is no way to negotiate we aren't yeah. negotiating humans are always negotiating that's what conversation is Someone says something, knows something, someone wants something. The foul memories part is what kind of makes me think that this haunts him. I, I think he he feels some remorse. I'm not I'm not going to say he's completely remorseless for his actions. However, I do think, like you had mentioned before, he would do it again and again and again and again and again if it meant that he was going to survive. In the same situation, yes. But I don't think he'd just go and eat his opponents if it meant winning i I think it's more of a i was in a dire situation and i did what i had to do to survive but not everyone would i think that's the point i think everyone would i i don't so i i feel like for instance i think a good example is i don't think cassius would go to that i think cassius would rather bleed and die trying to claw his ways out of the rocks i don't think he would at all i'm just saying i feel like that's the moral comparison to some degree and i feel like that's that's the reason that we saw earlier, like, Titus's goons and his squadron <laughs> yeah. were eating raw horse meat. Yep. Humans will do whatever they need to do in order to survive. Like, it, it is part of human nature. Right, lizard brain. I totally get it. I just feel like there's... That's, that's what I feel like the jackal got into. At sure. that situation. I will, I will concede. But I, I definitely... <laughs> I, see, I see where you're coming from. I just think that there's something else sinister inside of the jackal that made him push it further. Absolutely. But I I don't think it was, he didn't come across as badass right there. He came across as kind of desperate and lucky to have gotten out. That's true. That's true. He definitely was lucky to have gotten out or have even survived the cave in in the first place. So I, I had already read the line that I want to talk about next, but it's the humans are always negotiating. That's what conversation is. Someone has something, someone knows something, someone wants something. And not so much just from 
the jackal's perspective. That is a fascinating philosophical insight that I think applies to a lot of things. It does. And it's hard to think of situations where it doesn't. Right. Like if you look at our notes page, all I have written is a compelling argument, argument, but honestly, I'm not sure. No punctuation intended to continue. Couldn't think of an example. It's so fascinating. It's like it really is. Basically, it's just saying that like everything, no matter what you do, is a sales pitch to some degree on some even 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 something so minute. Hey, I'm going to have this conversation with my great friend Crossland because I like having conversations with him, but also probably because if I don't have conversations with him, maybe I won't be able to have conversations with him in the future as frequently. Like it's maintaining the friendship and it's. At a certain point of breaking down what's happening, a negotiation of my set, like my friendship and negotiating our friendship with each other to each other as a means of maintaining it, of strengthening it, of continuing it, whatever. Yeah. And like that's that was going to be my example of like, hey, you and I just chat all the time, but that can be broken down and Maybe it's cynical to look at it that way, but it's it's definitely interesting. And I feel like it does point out a sore spot in humanity. And I feel like the really interesting thing about the way that Pierce Bound writes is that he can get away with these very philosophical high notes because of the society that he's created, because of the way that it reads in fiction. It reads like a real sentence that these people would say. And yet It also reads like something straight out of an old stoic textbook or straight out of a philosophy course anywhere. Like, yeah, it does. It's really fascinating to me that he can get away with this. But in all honesty, there are rare circumstances where I think Stephen King could get away with this. Stephen King has an entire book about that. It's called Needful Things. And like literally it took him a whole book to arrive at the point where he could say something profound like that the deal with the mm-hmm. devil basically like everything is negotiation you just don't know what you're negotiating that's what the entire book is about yeah. and it, it takes a large metaphor to land at this versus he can just say this in a line of dialogue because it's accepted to us it's fascinating fascinating the way that he gets away with things in writing really like i'm going to think about that for a long time for sure that's like a big thing like i'm going to try to find examples of interactions between people that can't be broken down and interpreted as some sort of small form of negotiation. So one of the things that I find really interesting too, just, just a quick aside, the fact that uh, he, he talks about Lilith and like being willing to sell out Lilith is uh, interesting. It's totally fine. You know, like Lilith is an interesting character. She's diehard Jackal, but Jackal is not necessarily diehard her, which also speaks to my thought on him being totally ruthless, like being willing to sell her out because she coined his name. And doesn't like it. And so is willing to sell her out, even though she's a die hard, ride hard, ride with bones in my hair. Jackal lover. Ride or die. Basically. Uh, but they called the the howlers toadstools, which is that was uh, that just, was pretty funny. It's funny, but it's also like kind of a punch in the gut because we think of them no, as the howlers. It and it's like, oh, man, he thinks toadstools. OK, all right. They're all I, the short, weird kids. I'm not it. convinced that. He actually thinks that. Oh, I don't I don't think so either. I think everything that he says is calculated and intended to drive a rift between Darrow and his followers. So I I, I didn't take a whole lot of weight to that comment. It was it was a good comment though. So this the the next point of conversation is kind of out of text conversation. 
But I, I like the line that happens on page 348. We, we were enemies as children. Now let us be allies as men. You're the sword. I'm the pen. I know that Pierce Brown listens to and likes pop punk music. I question whether or not he's a fan of the story so far. Not that that's the first time that the sword and pen has been used in literature. It's been used a ton of times. However, knowing that he's also a pop punk fan means me into. Did you, though? But I also like the line. Yeah. I mean, and it, it does make sense, too. Mm hmm. Like he's he's appealing to the fact that everybody's kind of been forced to grow up and mature a lot in the last year. And also, it's a really good it's a really good situation for Darrow to find himself in. Has he? No, he hasn't already talked to Cassius. Right? Nope. No, that's nope, later. That's way later. Well, not way later. Like it's like a couple pages. pages. It's post. It's post capturing Olympus. <laughs> yeah, but still, that's being in close proximity to the Arch Governor. Probably pretty tempting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is pretty tempting until you win a spot by the Arch Governor's side. Then it's like I'm better anyway, and I earned it. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's but yeah that's the better way to do it. But obviously, that wasn't on the table before, right? This is the first time it's presented as an option. Yeah, but also it shows that he still same same flaw that Cassius has. I feel like that they are entitled to giving out favors of their fathers, and that says nothing about them as people. True, but I also think that Cassius, like, there, there's there's a difference between Cassius and, oh god, what is the jackal between the two of their approaches? Right, but at their, at their core, it's the same thing. I don't, I don't think so. So, yes, they're offering the will of their father, however, I think Cassius is kind of, is writing a check that he can't cash, and I think the Jackal is knowingly wa- able to bank on his dad supporting his decision. Does that make yeah, sense? It does. That's a good point. But also doesn't say anything about the merit of him as a leader either. I think it specifically does say a little bit more about Adrius slash the Jackal. Did you just Google it? I did. I did. I did, <laughs> I did search. I could not remember the name for the life of me. I didn't put it in the notes yet because I, I didn't. I hadn't gotten there. Um, but yeah. So... Uh, Adrius, I also try not to put spoilers in the note just in case you look at them early. But I, I think that this also speaks to Adrius's ability to break it down and to think about it and be tactical and offering things that he knows that his dad would agree with, which I think speaks to his leadership as opposed to Cassius is just like, these are my friends. They did well. I wouldn't have done well without them. Please give them a job. Like, I feel like it's a beg versus a play. Yeah, I, I, I think that is a good call. Uh, I, I, it's like it's like a ten percent difference. It's it's like a ten percent difference, but it does feel significant enough to mention. It's a difference in approach with the same outcome and the same sort of flaw in that they are swiping daddy's credit card, his social credit card. So uh, moving on from that, I love Pax's dialogue as he comes back after being shunned to like go walk in the rain, but in reality he was purging the tunnels of House Pluto. Uh, which was great as in terms yeah. of a scene that we didn't see. It was awesome. And I also speaks to, to <laughs> exactly. So it speaks to the way that it could be shot where this sh- scene could totally be shown. You could 100% like show this as Darrow is revealing through his monologue, right? So Darrow says something and then you cut away to Pax cleaning out the tunnels and being like, you probably had tunnels underneath or you had the cellars. In the, in the adaptation, just because we got to bring that up, 
Uh, has that been confirmed? I feel like it has. Fun fact about Pierce Brown. He is also a screenwriter in addition to writing these. Uh, he, I believe he was a published author before he was a screenwriter. He has submitted, written, sold a lot of scripts. I don't know that anything has been published where he has overt credit. There's some rules with the Writers Guild that are interesting and weird. So there may be something out here there that he's published that doesn't have his name on it because it was either minimally his and another writer can claim more credit on it than he can, blah, blah, blah. His predominant source of income are the books and screenwriting together. Right. So No, I, I get that. But I, I feel like there was a publisher that 20, purchased... 2018, he wrote and started shopping around the series and said at the end of this year, we'll either have an update on book six or the series. Okay. So one or the other will have an update on it. Because they did, they've chopped out the pilot into a couple of places there is definitely interest. It's just a question of do they want to do it the way that Pierce does it, wants to do it, and I think they should. I agree. Because he's also a fucking screenwriter. Like, get let him let him do it. That said, monologuing and showing packs in the in the tunnels would would be pretty fucking cool. Of course. Totally agree. Do you see this how this could be like Game of Thrones in space though? <laughs> I can. Yes. Yeah. It's it's basically Game of Thrones to space, but like it gets better. It gets even better somehow. Game of Thrones meets Harry Potter in space, almost. This first book is noted as the worst book in the series, but it's still pretty damn good. Uh, as a, as an, in a jar to this entire conversation, as starting this podcast with you and talking about this book, I've had a lot of people message me about the first 50 pages being really tough to get through and that first section Almost turning them off, which I know we literally talked about on the podcast in episode two. And the entire rest of the book validates it, but it can be really hard to move over that 50 to 60 page hump right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But the rest of it is so worth it. It's just it's it's a little bit of a slow intro. It pays everything pays off so well that even thinking back on the series, I neglect the intro, but I also still think about EO's dream and things like that and the way that, that it's set up. And I don't feel like it's a waste of space of 50 pages. They're just things. It's not that a I wish... waste, but it definitely pales. It, it does. It does. Because the series shifts kind of tonally and everything else. Uh, that's something we can talk about more in the wrap up. But I just want to like put in yeah. two cents right there. Oh, it's just so good. Like it, it reads so different. It, 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 like, it, it feels like it's written. Yeah. Just wait until Golden Sun. Just just wait until Golden <laughs> Fair Sun. Enough. You'll right. lose your mind. Let's continue. Um, so uh humans are always negotiating we said that oh i love pax's dialogue god damn it that's that's what i was talking about right before this pax's dialogue after and we talked about the adaptation he is just built up as such a cool character and we get a little bit of his humor we've seen him previously but we haven't really gotten you know you kind of had made illusions previously in like episode three and whatnot that he kind of seemed like a dumb brute but we get kind of the humor intelligence of the telemannus house to some degree here and to kind of like show that he's not just a dumb brute. Like he's not, he's no jackal, of course. No, but I mean, he's not super, in, like I don't get like. He's not an intellectual, any, but he's definitely yeah, smart. He's charismatically brutish. Yep. Yep. <laughs> totally agree. Totally agree. And, and the his way he laughs, laughs that gets everybody kind of amped up and like. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the full bellow. It's like the, it's the Gimli laugh, you know? Exactly. But Severo saying, I think you've taken bigger shits than him, Pax. Prime have more colorful ones, too. He's drab as a brown. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just poop jokes. Just in the middle of all this is just poop jokes. 
Mm-hmm. And I love it. Yeah. And I, and it also like Pax's character is fully on display here. I feel like it's really important to to talk about because he ultimately does also die here. But his, his character. So Jackal ultimately makes the call to saw off his hand off after Darrow offers it to him as a way out um, of the room. He totally takes it because he truly is the Jackal, right? In an inhumane way. Well, inhumane in some perspectives. But for himself, he's like, fine, it's a hand. And he just starts slicing and slicing. And we get a visceral description of what that's like. And he, he reaches the the bone of his wrist and needs to break it with the knife. And Pax says, no, no, no. And hands him an ion blade to cauterize and cut it off. Mm-hmm. And that both speaks to like that speaks to the jackals insanity and also Pax's humanity where he's like, you know what? I get that you're willing to go through with this. I'm not willing to see you suffer through the pain. Here's a tool that will make it easier. And the jackal then uses said tool to kill him. It's it's like some of these two pages are the easily the two most brutal pages in the entire book. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. God, I love Pax. I I felt a like real like personal connection to Pax for yeah. some reason. I don't know why. I just I really enjoyed everything about him. Yeah, man. I, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but my external hard drive is called Pax. His name Pax. Um, and my Did not mention that my main hard drive is called Morningstar. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Interesting. I, I am 100% on the PAX as an excellent person train, and he is nothing more than like a stand up example of what I think gold society always wanted to be, which is the self sacrificial. We are we're we are better only in the ways in which we can also enhance and empower others. And anything else that we do is custom. Like the everything else, like the duels and everything else he treats as strictly honorable custom, right? Even like when he was dueling Darrow, he smiled before the duel because he knew that it was going to be kind of fun for him yeah. in the way that they that pays off. I, I just think that Pax is the honorable example of gold, along with Cassius to some degree. Not not as honorable, but like similar. I think exactly as honorable. But Cassius also betrayed the fuck out of Darrow, though. Like in in protection of his brother, but like just for his family, right? For right. the honor of his family, and f- like strictly for his house, like his his name. And I think that is while not in line with reasonability, is absolutely in line with honor. Um, so they're, they're two different examples and two very different situations, but I think both very good examples of what. Uh, what they intended to mean gold society to be. Totally. I definitely agree with you. Telemanus. Telemanus. Backs out. Telemanus. So one question that this kind of brought up is it's been a long time since they talk about any uh, healed by the medbot. What are the kind of situations where they're able to come and intervene? Is it only like if they kind of get hurt and they get taken away? Yeah, so I, I think that the situation where medbots end up coming down is as a response to someone hitting a state where they need them. However, if they don't reach them fast enough or if someone's actually committing murder, that's when it changes. And that's where I think the proctors individually are responsible for their houses to ensure that people wouldn't murder in certain capacities, right? Because they're only given limited tools and there's... It's an advanced enough society where things could be replaced if they lost them. You know, there are carvers that exist, right? So in yeah. theory, yeah, and I'm not, this is by no means breaking any sort of canon, 
Jackal could have his hand replaced. Yeah. Right. Or I'm, or I'm like, more talking about the deaths. Yep. Because right. it, it seems like as thing as time has gone on in this book, and I mean, obviously things have gotten more serious and things have accelerated, but it's been a while since there's been a battle and students like there, there was the screaming rush of medbots and a bunch of students getting carried away. That seemed to stop happening. This all happened so fast that I think that that's no, part of the. I I, I know, but just overall. It seemed like the the use of the medbots was dwindling. I they did talk about the, I, I think it was in the last section where they talked about the familiar scream of medbots and other things like that coming down as yeah. they laid siege to House Apollo. That's true. They did. They did mention it. That doesn't downplay what you're saying. I think that the medbots are better suited to battles and less well suited to instigations of assassination. And also, they've advanced in what weaponry they have access yep. to. Yep. Um, which are much more deadly and much more dangerous and quicker to kill. So I, I guess it makes sense. Yeah. As a final note on Pax, um, before we talk about him in the wrap-up episode, ultimately, um, the, the fact that he, instead of trying to smother or dodge out of the way, decides to protect Darrow and jump on him to be the body shield for the blade that can't pass through is just... So goose, it's such a goose flesh moment to read all of those pages. I just, I immediately get goosebumps and just freak out. It's, it's so well done. And it's so, so sad. He threw himself upon me and was savaged, dead. Ten impacts as the jackal stabs at Pax trying to furiously, or trying furiously to get at me like some rabid animal digging in the dirt, digging through Pax to kill me while I'm down. So... As we know, as has led into this whole thing, uh, the Proctor's ambush, the Proctor mostly being Apollo and Minerva, or who was the other one? Venus? Venus. Talked about later. Anyway, so predominantly Apollo, uh, throwing in a, a grenade or what have you, and then rescuing the Jackal from there, screams back, you know, and, and runs away. The Howlers and Darrow chase him out into the snow and ultimately get in a fight where he's risen up in the air and Darrow gets kind of a total crazy badass line after leaking that he says bloody damn and the, the proctor kind of turning his head. You know, he just screams, you reap what you sow um, and stabs him in the eye with his ring blade that he was gifted way early on by Dancer. And yeah. it's it's just so good of a payoff as that was given back at some point by Fitchner. It's just great. It's just great. Oh, yeah. I genuinely thought it was going to be his undoing. I had forgot, like, while reading this, I had forgotten about the, like, half-day delay on the broadcast. So I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, how is he going to get out of this? But it was resolved. And we'll get into that later. Yeah. But, yeah, I was, I was for at least a couple pages, I think, uh, really waiting for him to get called out on it. Yeah, I, I definitely understand that. It, ugh, it's... So well done in all capacities. That entire fight scene between them. Like, I know that I've only got like a line here about the whole thing, which is what I just talked about. But it is so like jarring, like the whole conflict of like rising up into the air, dropping him, you know, potentially dropping him 300 meters. Like, it's just all of it is a lot. And then Mm -hmm. stabbing him in the face and taking his grab boots down. It's just it's just phenomenal. Um, taking the armor, taking the grab boots from Fitchner, giving them to Sephiroth, explaining to him that he knocked out his dad, <laughs> and then flying off to uh, where, where did you get these, Daddy? 
something like that. What yeah, was it? So you figured it out. Yeah. No, that's that's definitely <laughs> what it is. Yeah, it was. Uh, Whose are these? Severo asked me. Daddy's. I tell him. So you guessed it. Several laughs. There's there's one one other note on this before we move into the War on Heaven chapter. Um, chapter forty two is the the all of the people. Oh, who sorry, sorry, sorry. Before 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 going on from that, just continuing what I was just reading off. Uh, so you guessed it. Several laughs. He's locked in Apollo's dungeons. The stupid pixie. He laughs again. They have an odd relationship. Like <laughs> just leaving it at that. Like they have an odd relationship. Yeah. That kind of sums it up. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, I, I, I definitely, I definitely agree with you. So I, I feel like before the kill even is the mention of like him running through the list of all the people that have been sacrificed up until this point. Right. So my stomach mm-hmm. sinks, not again, not like father, not like EO, not like Leah, not like Roke, not like Pax. They will not kill her too. Mustang. The son of a bitch will not kill anyone because they had abducted Mustang, which then becomes the core goal, which is an interesting shift but it also makes sense. It's so passionate. Like everyone else that he's cared about up until this point, his knowledge has died. And so it's just yeah. like, you don't get to claim anyone else. Well, not everyone. He's still got Neryl and his mother. And... No, but of the people he listed, everyone was dead. Right. So like yeah, all of right. those, all of those. I mean, were... he was explicitly listing people that he cared about that died. We, we get handed back a win a little bit later. But <clears throat> so we, we, uh, we go to war, the war on heaven. War on heaven was... I looked at that page. What page is that on? Uh, yeah, 40. I keep, okay, I think earlier I said page 40, and it was actually the top of chapter 40, or the yep. bottom of chapter. Yep. So, to make that correction, I know I made a mistake. Top of, or uh, page uh, 355 on our copy. The War on Heaven. Like, I looked at it. I'm like, oh, well, that's bold, and mm-hmm. I know they're going to do it. Like, I know they're going to win. Yeah, well, and it, shit. it's just, it's a fascinating chapter. Also, you look at the total amount that's left in this book, and you're like, but there's so much to do. You're like, there's 20 pages left. What the fuck are you going to do in 20 pages? And that's where my dad's former comment of, like, skipping 40 pages. It's like, dude, you've read four of these books. How did you not know that the last couple of pages were going to be super important? So... Anyway, speaking of the the title of this chapter, chapter 42, The War on Heaven, just that being the header kind of tweaked, I think, or influenced what I imagined when like visualizing what was going on and like what Olympus looked like in that all I could think about were the uh, corrupted heaven maps of Diablo 3. True. Totally. Like the the real like kind of ivory pillars and sprawling like elegance i get a weird combination of that plus um like hercules depiction of olympus like that's yeah i could i could see that and i I could see that that's what it was going for but i think there was a conversation on our like discord server about diablo right before i started reading this chapter and then i read war on heaven Mm -hmm. i'm like oh well all right this is exactly what i'm thinking about right now now yeah, no, definitely. And I, I definitely get the, the pillar conversation. I love I love the description. Like there's such you would you'd said like lush and lavish is is the right words. We we see um who who is it? Venus that's been dating Apollo um previously and like his clothes are crumpled in the corner. It's just it's so so good. Yeah, Venus. Yeah. Um it is just all so good. And there's so much that happens, the rushes, the conflicts, the fights, um, Mercury like a drunken kind of like a drunken sailor but also at the same time while he's acting so drunk and so 
flourished. I, I, I don't know. He's, he's just moving through the air in such a refined way. He, he reminded me almost of like Sir Davos, or not Davos, Game of Thrones, the uh, dancing teacher. Yes, yes, right off, right off the bat. I forget his name as well. I know who you're talking about, the guy in season one. Very, very similar. And, and it's also remarkable because Mercury was the house that almost picked Arrow, right? The, it was a Jupiter. The guy who coined, like, what do we say to, what do we say to death? Is that yep, what it is? what do we say to death? Right. Not today. Not today. Right. So my point being that. That guy. Um, definitely. And it's a better payoff, kind of, in a way. He's kind of a villain, but he's not really. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's, he, he doesn't die, right? Like, he doesn't. Ah, well, does he? No, he, he gets tied up um, in the end here. Jupiter is the one who does. Okay. Which is also sad because the armor would only fit packs. Womp. Yeah, they, this this entire section of like capturing heaven is just so so great. It, there's so much here that like speaks to Darrow's prowess and the Howlers, and I also think it reiterates my. This is one of the few books series, even. And I'm not trying to paint a picture for you, but this is one of the few series where I like the supporting characters as much, if not more, than the main character at times. And I feel like this yeah. does a great job of painting. Severo is this very interesting fighter. This is a great job of showing Darrow's heart as he fights Jupiter and then ultimately Severo saving the day by slashing him. Uh, it's just right. All of it is just so, so good. As I, as I mentioned, it's literally uh, in the notes, it's just it's a chef's kiss. Like this entire chapter is just perfect. I couldn't imagine it any other way. And I I, I don't think I could really describe it better than that. Like better than a chef's kiss. Like it, it's really beautifully written. And if for some reason anybody is listening to this without having read this book, if you're gonna read a like if you're gonna just read a single chapter of this book for some fucking reason. I don't understand why you would only do that. Uh, read the war on heaven. Read, read this chapter. Like this is so beautifully written and really dynamic. And the, the characters that he interacts with, like all the proctors come to life in such a way that's so lively in such like few lines of dialogue and such like few lines of description like it's so concise but perfect as far as like describing what's happening really really flourish like there, there's a huge subtle concise great flourish to everything that's in this chapter i think this is one of the best chapters of literature i've ever read, read. that's that's great to hear i i couldn't agree more to be honest like it's I wouldn't go so far as to say it's one of the best chapters of literature, but this is one of the best. Well, I mean, you've read a lot right, of literature. Right, right, right. But what I would argue is that this is one of the densest and well-paced chapters ever. Like, to capture the number of plot points in so little information that he does feels seamless. Like, this is, mm -hmm. there are no needless words here. There's nothing that is not necessary. You could cut nothing out of this chapter and have it be okay it's literally like what eight pages ish and there's so much Something here like that like it's, it's so little eight no, it's not even eight. that is it including is it okay. the, the page that is half of it taken up with a title card so like oh my god it's so good and ending it with now we have all the access <laughs> yeah yep <laughs> that that a special like counter argument back to everyone else they're, they're gonna go back and take down um they're basically have to now after they've captured 
Olympus have to make sure that they actually win the regular game. Does it really matter at this point, though? I mean, it does. It clearly does, because that's the way the rest of the book is told. But so, yeah, the the last test, right? Chapter 43, the last test. He's uh, we, we kind of get the like reintroduction to love and feeling and emotion after this really action packed chapter right before that Darrow has. And there's so much of Darrow that just wants to take Mustang in this moment. Take is in yeah. like engage um, in any number of ways, but just decides to like kiss and like not move further than that because the image and the memory of Eo is so strong in his head that he, he chooses not to because he's unwilling to move on right. from that. Um, she's supposed to be kind of in a holding cell, right? Sort I mean, of. like in a holding cell in the way that she also has like a mattress with pillow feathers. You know, the bed is grand, sheets of silk, mattress of feathers. Well, so post that, and that's what I'm saying Gold. is like we are in a luxurious, lush yeah. place. Like if this is the place where they're holding their captives. Well, <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous. So, like, it, it is so lavish. Agreed. But also we know in posts that this is the arch governor's daughter. So that's like they're not, yeah, they're, they're not going to put her in a cell, <laughs> but we know that a little bit. Later. Uh, and she choose good point. You, you cut down my, argument, <laughs> but, um, she, uh, chooses to sleep on the floor. Do you think that's out of defiance of like who? All right. All right. Actually that opened like you pointing out that she's the arch governor's daughter. Um, and maybe they're giving her some special treatment that opens up this argument. Do you think her sleeping on the floor, like choosing to sleep on the floor is an act of defiance? Like, fuck you. I'm not going to take your like special treatment and I'm going to sleep like a fucking prisoner because that's what you're treating me like. 100%. I totally agree with that. Okay. I I think because, uh, the the reason that Darrow seems to kind of explain it away as is like she's so used to sleeping on the the cold like floor of the of the cave or of the forest or wherever they find themselves mm-hmm. um, that maybe a nice soft bed is too much to handle. Um, but I, I think I think it's a naive thought thinking about it. I, thinking about it, I think it's probably more of a, an act of defiance. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I totally agree. I think it's Mustang defying everything that all of the advantages that have been given to her brother, she has not been presented with. And so she continues to defy like secondhand love, basically. Yeah. So here, here's the quote. For so long, we have had to hide where we sleep. It must have felt so wrong lying in perfect comfort, even with sedatives in her. Uh, she tried breaking the windows, too. I'm glad she didn't. It's uh, it's a far drop. OK, the breaking the windows thing is kind of interesting to bring up. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? I, I hadn't put a thought to that, but um... the the first thought that I had was Monty Python and the prince like going out the window. <laughs> not gonna lie that was literally the first thought i had that on this That's reread true. was like i think this is the second time we've talked about that scene uh-huh a huge of land-esque scene yeah well yeah that's probably the most common quoted scene but there's so much more to it that scene is so good yet i it it just feels like it's a it's a quintessential moment where it's like obviously it makes no sense for her to try to jump out the window which is the only reason that she hasn't well and she didn't 
successfully break the window. Right, and she so, also okay. could not, which is interesting because she is also willing to choose death over acceptance of some secondhand inheritance. Like I'm saying, she's she's obviously not the focus of Nero, and so she kind of rejects that. So but that's we, we something don't, I was really going to bring up right now. Well, we we don't know that right now, but that's something I will be talking about later mm-hmm. when we get sort of to the end of the game. Let's continue. So we return with uh, talking to Fitchner, who's been rescued from the dungeon, right? And he keys into a couple of things with Darrow, his position, and compares him with the Jackal and their utter disregard for their own lives, and also reveals that Virginia is a sister to the Jackal, which we've already kind of talked about. So, okay. But let's talk about the first part first. kind of alluded to it. There's a really kind of powerful quote Right in the middle of 367, my mother had a dream that I would, could be greater than anyone in my family, greater than the name Andromedus. The name of my f- or, the name uh, of my the name of my father, fake father, fake family. Point still the same. I'm not a Bologna, not an Augustus, not an Octavia Alun. I smile wickedly, something he can appreciate. But I want to be able to stand above them and piss on their or all their gory damn heads. Fitchner likes that. He always wanted the same, but he found that without pedigree, merit only takes you so far. That frustration is his condition. Which is great. I think this is where Darrow really breaks through to Fitchner about why he is so motivated and doing what he's doing. Because I don't think Fitchner really understood his motivation. Yeah. Why why do you think he didn't understand it, it? Because he's always kind of talked to Darrow like he was some prestigious rich kid that had all the uh, opportunities in the world presented to him. Like all the other golds that he kind of has to deal with in the like high drafts. You don't think that he knew that from his draft card though, that his family was dead? Cause like everyone else knows it. No, he knew his family was dead and poor. I'm saying that like the way, the way his family was raised. Sure. Okay. They, they were supposedly kind of high ranking like a high ranking family of the asteroid belt sure that's a little far off but still kind of high ranking yeah yep is kind of the story that was painted for him totally like not necessarily the most important family in the in the galaxy but important in their region was the way i understood that he was kind of painted as and fitchner talks about Unlike you, I don't have the opportunities to go farther than this. And like mentions things like that pretty regularly throughout the story. And here, Darrow really kind of beats beats into him that like, hey, no, like I want to piss on the heads of the best. I'm not that high, but I will get that high. Fuck them. <sighs> it's so. it's good. It's it's really really interesting that entire conversation. It's only like the amount again the amount of information that is portrayed in dialogue over and in, in description and internal monologue over the course of roughly two and a half pages ish, not even basically a little bit over two pages. It, there's so much information yeah. and there's a lot of dump on Fitchner and his personality. And like you said, kind of the depth of what Darrow means. And he's speaking in a metaphor that he thinks Fitchner will understand to explain EO's dream. So he's found a way to capture kind of the core essence of EO's dream on a low level that makes sense to Gold's, which is family. I'm here for, I, I don't have the name, but I need to be able to stand above everyone else. Exactly. Which exactly. is great. He 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 killed the proctor. He 
killed two Proctors, right? Didn't he kill also kill Jupiter? Oh yeah. no, no, no. I think, I think so. he left Jupiter alive. Uh Jupiter lives. But there was another one. Wasn't there wasn't there another one that lived? So, no, that no, no. I, I think Jupiter survived, right? Apollo died. Jupiter survives but gets like his legs cut. I also in my first and second read, I also thought that Jupiter died. But it's explicit in saying that he was basically stripped of his armor, had his like tendons cut in his legs so that he couldn't like move um, or do anything. But he's definitely alive. They don't okay. they don't kill him. But need, gotcha. needless to say, close to a death. The only one who's dead is Apollo. Woo! Yeah. So <sighs> there's there's a lot here, obviously. Um, it's dense. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> so as I had mentioned before, we get to the part where he reveals that Virginia is the twin sister. What do you think? of that reveal well i mean obviously i mentioned earlier like i called it like the reason why i wrote it like that in the notes like i i fucking called Mm -hmm. it (laughs) i was so i also back backing up in this entire section i really like the way that it was addressed as the three complications right that fitchner saw for darrow and that this was the third Mm -hmm. he was like oh my bad you totally get it Mm, no he said i feel like he kind of said it it's really nothing you trust her yeah he's like well you assume that it's going to be okay, but it's also kind of sarcastic. I think it's only sarcastic to I, us. I took it as strictly sarcastic until no, straight up, straight up. I, I took it as sarcasm. I'm like, oh no, you you trust her. It's all good. And to be oh. fair, family is bond but, is treated everywhere else except for between these two. I think something that I hadn't really put together until a little bit later, but a good argument right here is the fact that the jackal has been presented with many boons mm-hmm. to further his conquest in the game and like win and uh mustang hasn't gotten any she hasn't she, she hasn't been presented with anything so she she is she is the twin sister but she's not respected in the like, same way yeah she's not they're, they're not equals right in the eyes of nero Ah, it's it's so fascinating. We've we've got a lot to talk about yet. So something before we leave Olympus that we didn't talk a whole lot about. I wanted to mention the razor, the weapon. What do you think of it in combat? Like as it was talked about with Mercury and otherwise. It's a little uh, ambiguous, I guess. Or I, it was a little hard to understand exactly what it was in its initial descriptions. But it seems kind of like a... And it was described as a whip, sort of, that can be at will straightened. Yep. Yep. With an electrical pulse. Right. From pulse armor or the like. Yeah. God, it feels evil. It feels like such a cool weapon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I can neither confirm I, nor I deny <laughs> how cool of a weapon it is. I, I really want uh-huh. one. Uh-huh. I would I would have so much fun just cutting stuff. Man, with this it. first book be- barely plays with the idea of the razor, and it's so exciting to move forward and to like think about it more and think about the rest of that. It's it's so good. Oof. Anyway, I just want to make mention of that before we move on to the rest of this chapter, which is basically the three complications that we as we had kind of briefly mentioned before. The third of which was uh, Mustang being a part of the house. The first was. Darrow needing to duel Cassius for in order to retake Mars, you know, and the second being society right. and the implications of raiding Olympus and the nepotism of the arch governor uh, being exposed. How is that going to be handled? So he's like, if you can overcome these three things, you'll do great. So the first thing on the menu is Cassius. So we immediately go down 
and seek to reclaim House Mars. And man, we were immediately presented with these three people on the crosses on Calvary Hill, basically. Calvary. 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 Yeah, no, it, it is. I But I think it's the hill Calvary, not Calvary Hill. Um. Anyway, it, yeah. it's it's a specific Cal- Calvary Hill is a sledding. Hill. Yeah, in St. Cloud. Um, <laughs> the point the point there being that Calvary is the place at which the Jesus and the two other people were hung on crucifixes for crimes that they had committed. Antonia Vixis and Cassandra, Cassandra actually being dead. Antonia, obviously having betrayed at some point and sold out other people. And Vixis also similarly being hung. Pollux, the one of the original goons that liked Darrow is uh, is not up there, which is good. Yeah, that's a plus. Good, yeah. good for Pollux. It is good. Yeah, for it's Pollux. it's like if one of Ursula's like eels escaped and decided to side with uh, Sebastian. Like, no, 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 I don't fucking like that. Mm. I don't like that chick. I I quit. Mm. I'm going back to this. It'd be an interesting. It's, it's a sticking point. That's a that's a fun cartoon. We should make that. <laughs> Red Rising, <laughs> a Little Mermaid story. <laughs> um, okay. Poor poor unfortunate soul. <sighs> yeah true there, and there, there's so much that happens in these pages we finally find out that the defenders are super glad to have the reaper back they're very excited they've also obviously been under siege and they're they've been stricken with a number of things over time and roke lives he is quiet as he hugs he me un like unrecognizably skinny and yep kind of decimated the, the three lines right so it's it's just three lines they're they're quick he is quiet as he hugs me, then his body shudders like Pax's did as he meets as he met death. Except these shudders come from joy, not pain. Roke lives. It's just it's so it's so reaffirming. I know you had speculated earlier that Roke was dead, and I just No, I you didn't. said you you convincingly said that not only was Roke dead, but also that he and Leah were in on a conspiracy with Antonia. Okay, I probably, I might have. Not only did you might have, we I argued about like it for I... literally an hour and 20 minutes. Okay. <laughs> like, I had to cut that down to like 10 minutes. To not rehash my drunk ramblings about Roke, um, I feel truly like thinking about it, even before getting to this, I felt like he absolutely was on the, their side and betrayed. I thought my argument was that he betrayed Leah too and used Leah as bait. No, your argument was, is that Leah and Roke were in on it, but Roke was betrayed and Leah didn't know that Roke was betrayed. That was your argument. That's a dumb fucking argument and I don't stand by it. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was not good. And I hope the edit shows that because I had to call that down because we talked about it for way too long. Man, that that's like a we we talked about doing a drippings episode. That is a drippings episode in and of itself. Is there's literally an entire hour and ten minute conversation about did Roke and Leah and Antonia? How did that betrayal work? It's it's there. It exists. De- devil's Devil's oh Cup. Oh my god, Devil's Cup episode. It's, that that one is horrendous. All right, I'll have to go through and actually like re-listen to my my arguments mm. on that. It's it's if it's real, it's uh. <laughs> We'll we'll take it. Anyway, I love the moment <laughs> where Roke and Dara reunited. It feels like it's it's oh, totally the brotherly moment. It's kind of paid off from earlier in the story with the three of them. And then we get kind of the the counter moment, right? We we do get Pollux, which I, I like the fact that Pollux is mentioned here and talked about and kind of like talks with him 
back and it's it's just kind of an offhanded mention you know in the passage mm-hmm. match me with a little girl i tried to kill her softly but she wouldn't die we've got it raw but at least we're not reds you register and oof like that's it's it's a tough tough read pollux is clearly like a, a central gold if that makes sense like he's not he's not swinging towards rebellion and he's not swinging towards like red or golds are the best but he's definitely definitely the racist middle or classist middle so that the next sentence or the next word right it's both the next word the next sentence and the next paragraph uh right it is italicized and it is not quoted yep. so it is it, it is, is red blue speak yeah it's also the sort of confirmation from uh, how do i describe it it's the kind of cynical confirmation from darrow of like yeah, these aren't. We're going through some shit, but it's still nothing mm-hmm. compared to what I've grown up with. Is it? So I, I feel like I, I. So how how okay, do you so take I, that? I disagree with your positioning, but I feel like you're on kind of the right track, if that makes sense. So, like, I think okay. the right O is if we take it to like current standards, right? It's like saying, "Well, at least we're not X ethnicity," and he's like, "Well, I secretly am." x ethnicity or group right like it's it's admittance that while he might not appear it on the surface he is a part of that minority yeah well yeah i think we're saying the same sure, thing sure. um with maybe maybe slightly different em- uh emphasis emphasis yes that's how it reads yeah <laughs> no i i i, I, I <laughs> like like i said i feel like we're just arriving at it in different trains of thought but i feel like we're on the same ish page i think we're on yeah. the same page I, i'm more focusing on the inner inner thoughts of Darrow when he says righto. And I think you're focusing on the fact that he's a red and thinking the term righto. Right, right. So there are complications because he thinks righto, which is a red thought. It's it reminded me like that particular moment feels very 1984 Orwellian, you know, where like they talk about double speak and like they talk about like him holding back his thoughts in his head because it is double speak and he doesn't want to say it out loud. It, it feels like that, yeah. like a thought crime does. So mm. th- that was that was my immediate impression. But yeah, it's it's great. So we move on from those moments and we move into him confronting Cassius, who is kind of like a decrepit, despotic king sitting on his throne with the primus hand. Well, even before that, even be, like. Right after Rito, there's uh, he leaves and I'm alone in my old castle. Titus t- died on the spot where I stand. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Bloody slag. Why did Mustang have to betray me? Everything is dark now Now that I know. And she hasn't betrayed him yet. But he assumes she has because it's the way that every he other gold it. has acted. In 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 present tense, with but the exception he, of Roke but and Severo, who are incredibly loyal to Darrow. Yes, but so has been Mustang, and Mustang has also exhibited so many, so many things that are counter to what golds are in the eyes of. I I agree with you, and I think it's important that her morality rides that line very finely, which I think is great because she also has abided by the means originally with like how with her house, right, with House Minerva. Is she she rode that moral line as far as she possibly could for as long Mm. as she could. But since she joined houses with Darrow, she hasn't been questionable, like nothing that she's done has been questionable. 
However, with the additional information that she is a member of House Augustus and everything with House Augustus being pointed against Darrow, both when he was a red and a gold, it's easy to see where he, Darrow, feels like she's aimed against him. Even though we, yeah. we have that no, perspective. I, I can see it. That maybe it's not, like, and I don't think she would be. It still feels like maybe there's a chance. But there's too few pages. It is, there still is a chance. But also, the, the, fra- the, like, the phrase is, why did Mustang have to betray me? And there, there has been, to, the, to this point, there's only been assumptions. There has not been an actual betrayal. He assumes that, but he, he specifically assumes that Mustang ran off to support her brother. And so that's where he views it as betrayal, which obviously it's, it's shown at the end that it's not betrayal. Misplaced. It's totally mispa- misplaced faith. Um, we do at this point, we only have 10 pages left or 11 pages left in the book. And so there's so little time left to like really digest a thought of what a betrayal would be on that level where it feels improbable that it is a betrayal. So it kind of feels anticlimactic to a degree unless it were to go in or feed into the next book. I especially at that sentence, I was quite confident that Mustang would not be betraying him. And so so I, I disagree a little bit. I feel like that entire paragraph is designed to mislead you to believe that Mustang is going to betray him because of everything that's, else. That's, right? that's what I'm saying, is that it was a little bit too over the top. Oh, dude, that... Oh, woe is me, Mustang betrayed but me. But there's no proof of that, and... Like it's setting you up for the expectation of failure and ex- expectation of betrayal. It's, it's both, and though, like, right? So, like, it's it's both. It's it's both evidence and it's counter evidence, right? Like sentiment. Or would she betray her blood for me? No. If she would have done that, she would have told me before I gave her half my army. She would have took her standard two in series. Like he is, he is both convincing her, her himself that she did and she didn't simultaneously. So. He's not fully convinced, but he's sitting there contemplating what it means. But at the very end, weighing it against the snap in Eo's neck, that's when it kind of seals it as like he's positive that gold always stands against him. And that's where he's like, well, I had to kill Eo because of these people. And so it does feel kind of like a final note where I agree with you. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm not taking it from the perspective of Darrow. I'm taking it from the perspective of a reader. And it felt so forceful about like, oh, Mustang betrayed me. Mustang didn't. Mustang is sure. this. That it, it seemed obviously, it seemed obvious that there would be a switch and a twist. And, oh, she actually believes this but I, I felt like there was more compelling evidence to say that she didn't what wasn't an ally to her brother at all yeah i would ag- i would agree um, and i feel like the line that i would write is like 60 40 right so i i can see where people i i was i was entirely convinced that she was not going to betray him Espe- like specifically at that line okay um but I, I just advocate for those that were maybe misled. And, and that's and that's where I think. But like, I, I agree with you. I think it's easy. I think it's easy to see either way, because Mustang at a certain point, like I said, with the mud line. And this is where I really want to call back to that is 
they're on the same level. It's they're they have an appreciation that is similar for the society and what they what society stands for and what it should or should not stand for. Also, some dude just tried to swipe my mirror in the parking lot. That was nice. Oh no! Okay, I'm gonna real quickly go chase I'm, him I'm down. Take a photo of his. I actually can know, clap. I know who this is, and I can see his license plate. Okay. Anyway, got it. We're not it's, cutting it's that the, out. It's the Get Jeep. him. It's parked right <laughs> next to me. You just hit my mirror. Um, if it's broken tomorrow, I will proceed. But it, I, I'm not trying to like say like, oh, this was obvious. And no, I I don't I like, don't think you are. It, it's it's my it's my kind of. Uh, I, I talk a lot about my conspiracy theorist brain, and I, d- I don't buy in too many conspiracy theories, but I do love digging into them. I, I understand um, where you're coming from. I'm just being the evangelion for anyone who might no, have I, seen it the other way. I get it. I get it. So post the Pollux conversation, it, it moves into a very interesting place where you finally catch up with Cassius and the way that House Mars has been since Darrow has left. Yeah. So... It's really this entire scene is kind of heartbreaking in a way and not unanticipated. But with with the reunion of Roke right beforehand being so close and so heartfelt and such like a heart clutching moment, you kind of wanted that repeat moment right here with Cassius. The guy was the closest to him forever. You, You want him to admit his faults and go hug him and apologize and convictions are too strong for that right right his his family is blood julian matters too much and we get we get the line on page 372 this is a blood feud if we ever meet again you are mine and i am yours if ever again we draw breath in the same room one breath shall cease hear me now you wretched worm we are devils to one another till one rots in hell uh yeah uh, (laughs) uh, fuck yep um he he essentially declared declared Darrow as his mortal enemy, which again ties into something in the future that I want to talk about. But I will wait for the sake of. Waiting. So we we've got one more chapter to cover, which is really the end of everything else that is here. It's it's the final chapter, which is Rise to Red Rising, of course. Mustang in a semi shocking turn of events to some of us does not turn against Darrow. And before 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 we get sure. to that point. Uh, The last paragraph of the previous chapter, page 373, if you have the hardcover copy Mm -hmm. that we're reading. I leave the castle through the spire. I am a red helldiver of Lycos. I am a gold primus of House Mars. And I am going going to my last battle in this bloody damn valley. After that, the real war begins. But there's the repetition of I am a red helldiver of Lycos. But now he's amended it like. The, that that is the that's his heritage the highest the highest level that you can achieve in his in his home situation and right now he has achieved the highest level that he can in his current situation as a gold like he, he is the primus and has regained the essentially regained the official title as primus of house Mars. The house that he was assigned to, like he he he's very proud of his accolades and very uh, vocal about them, even if only internally in this situation. Um, but early on, he constantly says, "Like I am a red hell diver of Lycos." Like that that is 
prestige. That is the highest and most like respected position in his tribe. And now he is also, again, the most respected position that he could possibly be right now. He, he's very prideful of his accolades, which is not something that we've seen in quite a while. He's been relatively humble. Yep, but now he actually feels like he's claimed that prideful moment. Yeah, we, we talked about way yeah. earlier in episode two or three when he's, or maybe it was four even, when, uh, when he makes the rank of Primus, technically speaking, how it's met with little fanfare and how every accomplishment as a gold is met with so little fanfare. But now he's kind of internalized it where it's not about the fanfare. It's about how he feels about it, the, the position that he's achieved personally. You know, even though it's for his family, it's for so many other things. He still feels a personal central accomplishment based on the social acceptance that he sees. Yeah. It's great. It's wonderful. Exactly. It is. It's no awesome. question. So we're, we're then met with in chapter 44 rise. Ah, so good. So we're, we're reintroduced to Tactus. Tactus is reintroduced. Um, he's talked about it a couple of pages ago as well. But uh, assume command in his absence. The man is a cruel beast, but he's my cruel beast. And then after Mustang delivers Adrius, the jackal, naked, bound and gagged with one hand, disarmed, haha, um, in front of him. It's it is it comes as a semi shock. Like you said, you had, you had predicted it. You had thought it through. Um, but I think to a number of people, it, it would be a lot to resolve within 10 pages. So it is it is able to be predicted, but it also feels like it could have been something that bled over between books, if that makes sense. In a different book. Like, it, yeah. it could have been a longer plot line. It could have been. And I think, potentially, it still could sure. be. I think I think echoes of it will remain and uh, show themselves later. Tactus also says but, right there, like, bugger my gory balls right at the end. And it's like, I have one. <laughs> the Reaper Darrow is one, which is great. And we, we talked about previously some of the things with Mustang and the openness and other things like that. So I, I feel like that feeds into this right here. There's an interesting note. Several might know more about Darrow since he said bloody damn and edited that out of the footage, right? And is also responsible for deleting said footage. Several probably knows about yeah. Proctor Apollo and the things that went on there. What implications do you think that has into the future? Well, I, I, I he certainly knows. He, he clearly knows. What, what is, where is the exact 376, quote? three quarters of the way down. Audio in the storm was... Uh, Severo is near me. In his eye, I see a subtle difference when he looks at me. The conversation we had when he finished editing the tapes was short and frightening. It echoes in my ears. The audio in the storm was scrambled. He said it couldn't make out the last words you said to Apollo, so I deleted them. One of my last words was bloody damn. So, like, he, he knows. <laughs> he clearly knows. But also, he's maybe unsure about what to think of yep. it or how to react to it. Because I, I, I think that's the last time... Several yep. talks to as far like as far as this totally. goes. So that it leaves a lot to be uh, played with. I think what will happen based on how Severo is always sort of talked is he'll have maybe even more respect for mm -hmm. Darrow. There is such a huge cultural brainwashing that happens in this society at all levels that maybe even though they're ideals align he'll be he'll be seen as he would be considered a terrorist yeah. i guess or the equivalence of uh, right my my sort of interpretation of this is maybe severo is wrestling with how to 
comprehend the knowledge that he's just sure. received. Or, I mean, there, there's no obvious, like, definitive answer, but the use of Bloody Dam is low speak to the nth degree and is a dead giveaway for red communication. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely agree. I feel like there's there's something there between Sever and Dara that will be explored going forward. It's it's good to think about that in recompense. So Yeah. I think it'll be strained for a weird mm-hmm. reason. And not not that like, oh, I think there's gonna be something weird that comes in and strains the relationship. I mean, Severo is going to be wrestling with what to think for a while. And is going to be acting strangely until he kind of comes to grips with how he should actually approach what he knows or what he <clears throat> thinks he might know. And it'll be very, very compelling drama. So the the final sort of conversation around the book stems mostly around the end of the drafters with Augustus and everything else that, that kind of paves its way out on the last eight pages here, right? We're quickly met with our climax yeah. and then a, a resolution that's very quick. And we find out that Darrow is to become, chooses to become a member of House Augustus based on an offer from Augustus, which is just so wild. He sacrifices his meaningless last name of Andromedus to become a lancer of House Augustus, like an honorary son, basically. Right. Um, despite the heavy tension and feelings and emotions that are kind of swelling in Darrow, his his decision to accept that offer in the in the terms of tactical moves. If if he's looking at this like a war, this is the right mm-hmm. move because one he gets very close to the man that killed his wife. Two, he stays close hypothetically to Mustang, who he is falling in love with. Like it or not understand it or not like he he is he's falling for her and sees a lot of eo mm-hmm. in her and also he just declared a, he didn't declare it but a blood feud was declared between cassius and darrow which means that if he were to reject the arch governor here the two most powerful houses on the planet would have something against him one being cassius Number two house, the Bolognas. And two, being the arch governor, being rejected, A, and also having defeated the jackal, the son and heir to the arch governor's like power. And it kind of leaves him in, in this weird sort of really difficult uphill battle where his best bet is working with the Rage Knight, who we don't really know a ton about right now, but doesn't seem to be a very popular or charismatic leader. And it'd be it'd be a really kind of slow uphill yep. grind towards yeah, gaining so power. He's, he's kind of only really got two options, right? Like you had said, um, there's Lorne, we don't know a whole lot about right now, who's the Rage Knight. He's one of the twelve Olympic knights. Um, but we don't we don't know a whole lot about him. And we also have um Augustus as an option. So we've got first and third. And the Bolognas are almost entirely ruled out because of what Darrow did to Julian and the blood feud there. Like, there's no way that Cassius and him can exist on equal playing fields inside of the Bologna hierarchy. So 
he really has to choose between first exactly. and third. What does he choose? Well, he's going to choose first, even though it's with like literally his arch nemesis. Well, but but also he knows Mustang didn't right. betray him. I, I'm not talking the whole house. I'm just and talking that, Nero with Nero. But I think the whole house has to mm-hmm. come into play. I think it does. Um, I agree. So I just listened to uh, our most recent podcast and the the one that just got published. And we talk about how uh, <laughs> the golds you, you ask, like I, I mentioned that the golds are probably in red fucks. And you're like, do you, do you think that's really true? And I'm like, I think it could be. Um, so this is relevant because I have no idea what implications come with uh, being a lancer of a house. And it kind of seemed like he'd be considered part of the family. Yep. Um, so pursuing a relationship with hmm. Mustang would be hypothetically, yeah, part sure. of the family. Um, and your your position was, and I, I agreed with you, was that I don't think they really cared <laughs> about <Yeah. laughs> incest <laughs> in general. But that is something to consider, and something that was probably on it on Darrow's mind when making that decision was. Mustang was probably on his mind when making the decision of accepting the offer. Totally. So, so we've got we've got three final things to kind of discuss. One is in the last part of the chapter, which is the final last paragraph of this book, which is the ultimate irony, right? Wherein Augustus says, Darrow, Lancer of House Augustus, rise. There are duties for you to fill. Rise. There are honors for you to take. Rise for glory, for power. For conquest and dominion over lesser men, rise, my son, rise. And that's the end. That's it. That's that's it, folks. Man, it's it's so good. So before we, we we've got two two other questions, like I said, um, one, the end of the book raises questions about the future. Where do you think the series goes from here? Give me give me a snappy minute answer. I think Darrow becomes ne- the next book. Darrow is met with a montage of kind of training to be sort of a hand of the arch governor and learns the tools of the trade and learns what it means to lead in, in the real Mm -hmm. world and compares it to his time at the Institute. I think he is probably knowing, knowing how the arch governor was focusing on his son and basically ignoring the idea of his daughter who are twins, but like clearly he was focusing all of his intention on his son. And then even mentioned at the last couple pages, he was spending all of his attention immediately talking to Darrow and not like reconnecting with Mm -hmm. his children. Um, I think there will probably be some sort of forbiddance of him and Mustang meeting and dating. And that will go, that that rule will go broken. I think he will have the first opportunity to tell someone and trust someone with his secret that he is a red. I'd like to think that'll be Mustang. I don't think it will be. I think it'll probably be some sort of slave, some sort of high red or something Mm -hmm. that he works closely with that maybe has connections to the sons hmm. of Aries. I don't know. Those, I, I think those are the things that'll happen in the first couple okay. chapters. Okay. Of All right. All right. And then the final question before we, uh, we leave red rising for the most part behind before our final analysis episode, 
What was your favorite part of this week's reading? The fight with Apollo. It was uh, it was as physical as it was emotional and tense in both physical and mental ways. In that he slipped up and said "bloody damn." There there was a there was a lot that there was a lot of the line, a lot of tension, a lot of drama, a lot that there. transpired for sure. And it was it was so there, there there wasn't anything wasted as far as like words go, and there wasn't anything left too much to the imagination like it, it was very well balanced in how how much was described in the in what transpired love it there there are a lot of moments in here that are great i i think i agree with you i think it's hard for me to neglect um my my personal favorite inside of the section is the bit with roke um and the the like re-emergence yeah. of that brotherhood and just like that, that moment where Roke is alive and we had all assumed him for dead for the most part, you'd assumed him for betrayal, potentially death is just apparently I, I assumed him. For you dead. not only assumed him for genu- dead, genuinely, I don't that he completely betrayed Darrow. And it's so it's it's OK. Well, it's I okay, did. But I, I stand by that part. I stand by the part where I assumed he was betraying yeah. Darrow. That tracks. Um, I don't know where I I don't know where I. Came up with the idea that I thought he was dead because I the way I remember it is irrelevant because we have true. it on record. So true. Uh, <laughs> so what I want to talk about next is going to be what we're doing next week that's published. So next week we are going to release our wrap episode for the entirety of the Red Rising book. With that, for the first time ever, we have a special guest. So on our wrap episodes, we like to feature someone else who has read the story that either we know or who we invite onto the podcast, having some sort of special relationship with the story. And even sometimes, hopefully down the line, fans, um, we'd, we'd love to have other opinions. Yep. Our thought process here is I've had my brother jump in on the series for the first time. He's reading this along with us. And so my brother, Bingham Shaw, is going to be our guest next week, which will be really interesting. I'm pretty excited. He's been be live texting me his opinions as he goes through. So... He's he's got some um, needless to say, it'll it'll be a good episode. I'm I'm very excited for that. Uh, and then beyond that, Bingham's a little shithead and I love him. I love him like a little brother. It, it'll be exciting for sure. I am so psyched for that. And I'm also very excited for us to post that we're going to have our normal crunch week. And what a crunch week is for us is going to be a Monday reveal after this episode after that wrap episode we're going to do a monday reveal of talking about golden sun we're going to do a short story in the middle of that week and then the week we'll also do a preamble so in the week following our red rising wrap episode we'll have our typical three week or three episode crunch which will wrap up to about like an hour 45 ish fit inside of the normal space it'll be very exciting we're stoked for you guys to hear it yes cool Give me a lot of thank you for listening to words and whiskey. Thank you for listening to words and whiskey. We hope you've built up a tolerance to us. Subscribe to us on your preferred platform like Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, or whatever else you use. And check us out at our website, wordsandwhiskey.show. We filled our top shelf with our favorite cocktail recipes, as well as other important information for you. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at wordswhiskeypod. All those links and more can be found in our show notes. A five-star rating on the platform of your choosing goes a long way to springing us up on them leaderboards and getting us noticed.
We're just two dudes helping encourage people to read and get out of their comfort zone while thinking critically about literature. Thanks for listening, and we bloody damn better see you next week.